0: I'm Mark Ramsey, Executive Director of the Ministry Collaborative.
1: And I'm Jennifer Watley-Maxell, the Program Curator for the Ministry Collaborative. Obviously, we are living in a time of seismic shifts.
0: And these podcasts are often recorded ahead of time. This recording was done before the global health crisis caused by COVID-19
1: and also before the most recent painful and poignant examples of racial injustice in our society.
0: The Ministry Collaborative seeks to promote and nurture deep and searching conversations about God's activity
1: in the world and our place in it. And so with all that, we commend this podcast to you. Welcome To the Ministry Collaborative podcast,
2: a series of honest conversations about opportunities, challenges, and joy in ministry today. I'm Adam Mixon, content curator. I'm Adam Borneman, program director.
1: I'm Jennifer Maxell, program curator.
0: And I'm Mark Ramsey, executive director of the Ministry Collaborative.
2: A project of the Macedonian Ministry Foundation, the Ministry Collaborative nurtures a national network of pastors and congregations
3: committed to faithful, creative, and courageous engagement in their communities.
1: Every day, We are inspired by ministry leaders from across the country who are exploring possibilities,
3: learning from
0: broad
2: perspectives, taking risks, and who are eager to join candid discussions that generate disruptive creativity.
0: One of the things that's guided my ministry has been a legendary quote by a legendary management guru, Peter Drucker, who once said, effective people are not problem-minded, they're opportunity-minded. They feed opportunities and starve problems. I love that, and it's so hard to do. This is Mark Ramsey. I'm here with Adam Mixon, Adam Borneman, and Jennifer Watley-Maxell.
1: Well, I love that as well. And I'm going to take a moment to just confess that as much as I love that and as much as I, I appreciate the theory, I find it extremely difficult to do. And just as we've been sitting here talking about it, I'm trying to really pinpoint what it is that I find difficult. And I think it's because in, you know, so many roles in my life, I am the fixer. I am the one that people rely on for answers. I'm a mom. I'm a pastor. And I think that's just kind of like my default. So the idea of starving problems just makes me nervous.
3: What do we mean mean by starving problems? What does that really—so you say it's convicting for you. Why is that? How do you interpret starving a problem?
1: When somebody brings me a problem, my first go-to is, okay, let's get to fixing this. And when I hear starving a problem, I hear neglect, uh-huh. Let's not deal with it. Let's just move on to something else. And that makes me nervous.
2: I love doing well, that. Well, it's it's interesting <laughs> to me. My knee jerk to the, the quote that Mark opened up with is that it's kind of just playing with words. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Obstacles and adversity, challenges, you know, they're irresistible, no matter how well we live or whatever. But what I find changes is how we see them. Maybe you can help me out a little bit here. But when I say here, starving a problem, for me, that's just shifting my view of it.
0: Yeah, I don't think problems are all created equal. And I think Mm. some problems or challenges Mm -hmm. lead to opportunities, to growth, Mm -hmm. to nurture, Mm -hmm. to vision. I would say in church work, after 30 plus years being a pastor, Mm -hmm. most problems that we are presented or pastors are presented with on a given day do not lead to that. They are frankly soul-sucking bogs that will take all our energy and attention and largely to solve the problem of one or two people rather than move a faith community forward.
3: Yeah, when I hear this, I think about stewardship of myself, of whatever gifts, time, energy I have. This is a very important principle for me because I'm the stereotypical classic eldest child overachiever, got to fix everything, and that was killing me in ministry early on. And then I learned this before I had ever heard the Drucker quote, I I started to realize, you know, there are some things that are coming to me that it would be irresponsible and disobedient to God for me to give this too much attention. It was a matter of stewardship. It wasn't just a matter of ignoring someone or their request or their problem. It was a matter of, okay, I'm going to touch this once and move on because this is not something that's faithful for me to spend much of myself on. So for me, it's a stewarding myself faithfully.
1: I like that language. And I think that helps me to reframe. I think that challenges are the shadow side of opportunities. So I definitely have that part of it. But I think just in terms of the practical, what does that actually look like?
3: Well, the hardest thing for me was just sometimes to say, you know what, I'm going to ignore this. We need to be able to tell each other, you know, it's okay for you to ignore that. Mm -hmm.
0: If you get four emails all coming in within 15 minutes, one is about a flood in the basement of the church. One is about a uh, personnel problem in the nursery, and two others are fairly important, but not, none of them are life and death, you know, head of the emergency room things. Mm-hmm. All the time we sort, I will pay attention to this first, this second, this third, and I'm not going to get to this. I think, though, we are fairly inconsistent with how we apply that. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm going to double down on, I think, a lot of what particularly ministry leaders get sucked into takes all our time when we get to the end of the day. And I'm like, I haven't worked on my sermon. I have not visited the two people that would really need my presence and my mm-hmm. prayers. I haven't done this. But I checked off a lot of things off my list. Yeah, it... I
3: mean, it goes back to the whole busyness, idolatry that we've talked about before. It's checking things off the list and actually... Um... An unwillingness to disappoint people, Adam, have you said so many times?
0: I also think that ministry can easily devolve into constituent services. Mm-hmm. Another person once said, the hardest thing to do is to program for, plan, or resource a constituency not yet present. That's another way of saying starve problems and feed opportunities. Because, And the reason we don't plan or give resources to a constituency not yet present is because they're not present, which means they're not going to write us emails that say, why haven't you done this? But do they fit the long-term vision of building a faith community, of faith formation in Jesus Christ? No, it doesn't, but it'll keep people happy. I think that is a real uh, lure and it's poison in ministry a lot of the time. I remember I
1: went to a conference. I think it was an orange conference and Andy Stanley was there and he introduced there some other pastor and the person came out and he said that his first official act when he came into his new position was to establish a hierarchy of who they meet with and how they go about making relationships. He said that they will always meet with an outsider over someone, a member of the congregation, any day. And at the time, that just blew my mind. Because I was like, what do you mean? Like, these are the people that pay your salary. Checks. Right. I'm like, these are people that pay your salary. They keep the lights on, you know. But when he expressed it, he talked about it in terms of discipleship opportunities. And he talked about the idea that we spend all of our time maintaining the people who are already in To the exclusion of being able to reach out to the lost, those that we are supposed to be seeking and leading to salvation, that we never get around to those people because the people who are already in Mm. take so much. And that it was really a culture shift within the congregation that people had to learn and understand if they could not get a meeting yet they were meeting with somebody else where they had an opportunity for evangelism and discipleship. And that really did change the way I started thinking about ministry and stewarding my time. So that did help me get further along the path in doing some of this.
2: Yeah. Hearing hearing you all talk about it made me think about, again, kind of where I serve. I haven't really struggled with having to apply myself to a bunch of, what did you call it? Constituent services. (laughs) I haven't had to waste a lot of time on that. But the simple fact that, again, with the limited economy and being a bivocational pastor, there's an understanding that I can't do all of that. It's impossible. The model doesn't work if all roads lead. To me,
0: Yeah. And Adam, I, I want to say, I think that is a really necessary corollary to this, mm-hmm. because I think this can be situational dependent. Mm-hmm. It's what we said last time, don't waste a good financial crisis. When things are narrowed because of the urgency of the place or the moment, this isn't as relevant. But I think one of the things pastors have more than almost anything else as a tool for ministry, which sometimes we don't realize is where we put our attention We have choices every day. I'm going to look at this and leave this for later. Mm -hmm. I'm going to privilege this and not this. That over time really does shape a faith community in some pretty powerful ways. And I experience, and I'm saying this about myself, first of all, as I think about my ministry and what I've observed in others, I squandered that so many times by simply dealing with the immediate thing in front of me rather than what is the opportunity of this day, this week, this season in ministry that I need to devote myself to. And here's the kicker, and not necessarily be liked by everybody. -hmm. If I do that, I think this is what we don't talk about in. Well, there's a lot we don't talk about in ministry. Mm -hmm. I think the need sometimes to act not in a way that makes people upset cantankerously, but I'm not going to pay off. This need I have to be liked, to do what is right, and try to work in trust and vulnerability with a congregation to help us craft something a way forward. We don't talk about that. And some
3: of us are very naturally good at not being liked, uh, which is very convenient for this. Um, (laughs) I'll let y'all be the judge of who around the table fits that description. But I I do want to say Well, it it might be a confession. It's just a transference. I'm projecting something here. But. But I want to underscore um, what was just said by both of you about the situational nature of this, because, you know, Jennifer, your comment earlier about um, the the pastor was talking about basically having kind of a formula for how they prioritize. I mean, that that makes me a little nervous. I, I understand the principle there, and I probably should do a little more of that. but. I also think this is always a moving target because this is a matter of attending to the Spirit. So on the one hand, I want to say, yes, I'm always going to put the, for lack of a better word, the kind of missional framework for this first. I want to think about the next constituency, right? The people who are not yet in the system. I want to put that first, but I never want to make that such a rule that I'm not tending to things that come to me more quickly. I also want to say, I think we're all very empathetic with our colleagues around the country for whom th- this is very complex because a lot of them are in systems that have been with deep assumptions about how they function for a long time, uh, with people who write big checks to keep that system going, who are part of that constituency, and to make that turn is, is very nuanced and requires a lot of modeling more than declaring.
0: It does, and a lot of our colleagues, or us some of the time, yeah. are miserable in ministry. Yep. There are a lot of reasons for that, of course. I am positive, after talking to probably 20 pastors a week in various forums, one of the reasons is we're just trying to solve the serial problems and never feeling like we're contributing to a larger thing that God is doing.
3: Mm.
1: Well, and I think also not just trying to solve problems, but I think also problematizing Mm. things yeah. that do not necessarily need to be problematized. <laughs> that's so <good> um, nice. <laughs> one of the first words I learned when I got to cemita- cem- cemetery, the cemetery, <laughs> yes. Freudian slip. And that's our podcast for today. <laughs> <laughs> the frozen chosen. <laughs> one of the first words I learned was problematize. And I remember I had written a paper on something and they you know, took off for it, even though I had the right answer, because they wanted to problematize this concept for me. They didn't want me to take it for granted. And it became a practice of what we did to kind of engage. And I think some of that spills over when we go into practical ministry, where instead of just kind of dealing with things, It's almost like we look for the difficulty, the challenge in the Mm -hmm. situation, and we have a habit of kind of feeding it this energy that it doesn't have on its own and kind of seeing problems where there may not be problems or blowing up problems. I can't tell you how many times you're in a board meeting or a committee meeting and something small comes up. And before you know it, the whole meeting has been hijacked. And, you know, I have gotten to the point where I will very quickly say, you know what, this is not on the agenda. We're going to table this and discuss it at another time, which a lot of times end up being no time.
3: I had a committee of people one time arguing about what color to to paint part of the narthex in the front of the church. This was a big thing, apparently. And someone stormed into my office and said, so-and-so wants this color, but that's too expensive and that's ridiculous. And I said, I don't care, (laughs) (laughs) Um, which is probably the best thing I could have said to them. And they just kind of said, okay, and they left. (laughs) Uh, And I I
2: started using I don't care a lot more in very uh, savvy ways. What's interesting... uh In leadership, people expect you to cast vision. Mm -hmm. And it's like walking into a room, and if you look up, people will start looking up, Mm -hmm. just kind of instinctively. Where you cast your eyes or place your attention is going to, even because people defer to you, their energies are gonna track toward whatever. So what you deem as important by looking at it or giving attention to it becomes important to them so you end up majoring on mm, stuff that, that's so good. which is problematic when churches forget that they don't exist and of themselves or for themselves we are god's visible presence in the world so if people are not being raised to the point of maturing to realize that we are not self-referential but we are i'll, I'll say specifically something happened while i was in the pulpit yesterday where someone had a seizure mm. in the service but it was right smack in the middle of the worship and i was preaching mm. and there were people pointing and doing stuff but i had to let the folks who were closest tend to that i was like we have to finish we have to get through this and it wasn't for lack of compassion it wasn't kind of thumb in my nose i don't really care about that or that's not important but i had to trust that the people who were around and the people who are equipped to deal with that situation can actually handle it mm. while i wed myself to the task of getting us through the rest of that service
1: yeah, yeah. And I think that goes back to what Adam was talking about earlier and how Jesus, in the midst of all of this tension and swirling chaos, occupied this certain place. And I think we tend to lean into the adage, the squeaky wheel gets the oil, which again is a secular reference that we have adopted. And I think, again, it goes back to how do we as a sacred space and a sacred community be intentionally countercultural? That in the world, that dynamic is at play. But when you come in here, there is a different way of being and a way of doing.
0: And to put it a little less poetically, most messes can get cleaned up by people in the room. Church folk are really very responsible and capable. And I cannot tell you the amount of time I've wasted in my ministry talking about what might happen if a mess does occur sometime down the road. Mm -hmm. The fact is we can clean up messes. How many times is there no vision in the room, though? I know Ken and Callahan, among others, have gone to the 80-20 thing where generally, and I think he was addressing both churches but also groups of churches or denominations, spend 80% of their time on money on the 20% of things that are not going well, and they starve and only give 20% of their resources and attention to the places where God's work is being done in abundance. The point there that he and others have made is flip that. Make stronger what is strong and leave what is not. And then when something that is being starved, if you will, actually rises up with a way to address it, then do that. But don't let that be the thing that carries us. I actually think this is one of the chief reasons some parts of the Christian faith are struggling so much right now because we become problem solvers rather than those who are investing and sacrificing for a vision.
1: Thank you for listening to the Ministry Collaborative Podcast.
2: Our producer is Marthame Sanders. To
0: find out more about us and our work of cultivating leadership that makes a difference in congregations
2: and communities, visit our website at
1: www.ministrycollaborative.org.